Well, good evening, brethren and sisters, and welcome to our Bible class for this evening. Another valuable opportunity to have our minds refreshed and elevated by a consideration of God's Word. Particularly tonight, we're going to start a series to the title, Women in the Life of Christ. And tonight, we'll be considering that subject under the leadership of Brother Lane Rickmeyer. We'll begin by singing together hymn number three, which asks for our guidance from our Lord and God. Lead me, Lord, lead me in thy righteousness. Make thy way plain before my face. Hymn number three. To begin our study tonight, we'll read together Genesis chapter 38, and Brother Royce Nichols will lead us in that reading. Thanks, Brother Royce. Reading with you from Genesis chapter 38. And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adolamite, whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shuah. And he took her and went in unto her. And she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bare a son and called his name Shelah. And he was at Chezib when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his, and it came to pass, when he went in unto his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house, till Shelah my son be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in process of time, the daughter of Shuah, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hirah the Adolamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is, by the way, to Timnath. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife. <coughs> when Judah saw her, he thought her to be an harlot, because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me, that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it to her and came in unto her and she conceived by him. 
And she arose and went away and laid by her veil from her and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adolamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, Let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Behold, I send this kid, and thou hast not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth, and let her be burnt. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father in the law, saying, By the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet and bracelets and staff? <coughs> and Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shelah, my son. And he knew her again, no more. And it came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand. And the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. And it came to pass as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. And she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Phares. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand. And his name was called Zara. Now ask Uncle Lane to come forward and begin our series on women in the life of Christ. Thank you, Brother Peter, dear brethren and sisters and young people. In our studies, we're going to look at the reason why four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba, are mentioned in the line of Jesus. Now, Brother Peter corrected himself in his prayer. It's in the line of Jesus, not the life of Jesus. You would have had a very long life if you would have seen all those women. But those four women are mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, we can read here about the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. So that's what the generation is all about. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abram begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and Judas begat Phares and Zarah of Tamar, and Phares begat Esrom, and Esrom begat Aram, and Aram begat Abinadab, and Abinadab begat Nachshon, and Nachshon begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. So here are those four women. 
These four women, brethren and sisters, either risked their lives, they suffered the deepest humiliation, or they left their closest friends and family behind to show their faith in the promise of God that a seed of the woman would come to bring salvation to mankind. In other words, they were saved in the bearing of that child that was promised to Eve. Many women must have had that hope in Israel, not just to have babies, which most women do in any case, but to become the mother of that child that was to overcome the seed of the serpent. These women were living examples of that wise woman of Proverbs chapter 14. Yep. Well, as Heritage College, there's nothing bad with that, is there? I'll just close it. Actually, I may mention Heritage College in my talk in any case. <laughs> um, so they were... Joel, there's something not quite right here. I'll just switch it off for 10 minutes. Right. So where were we? I said they were the examples of that wise woman that builds her house and not like a foolish one who pluggers it down with her hands. But why were these four women specially mentioned in the line of Jesus? Why not Sarah and Rachel and, and before that Rebecca? They were the great mothers of Israel. How would we cope with those four sisters? In Genesis 38, which we just read, we are told how Tamar got that promised seed from Judah. Not an easy chapter to read. And some families actually skipped that chapter in their daily readings because it's so difficult. Rahab's profession is also not one we would like to elaborate on. We wouldn't like to have sisters like that in our ecclesia, would we? And if our ecclesia was a Jewish ecclesia, we wouldn't like to have Rahab or Ruth in it either. Now David, he was the beloved king of Israel. But his actions with Bathsheba cannot be condoned, yet God forgave him when he acknowledged his sin. And we would have thought naturally that Abigail would have been the seed bearer of the promised seed, but no, God chose Bathsheba. Would we then, in those women, see the beautiful qualities which God saw? Or would we look down our noses at those women as the disciples did at the woman of Samaria? When they saw Jesus conversing her uh, at a well, they marveled that he spoke with her. They wouldn't have done that, spoken to a Samaritan woman and an immoral one at that. So the lesson, brothers and sisters, we're going to learn tonight is that Yahweh sees not as men see us. For men see us at the outward appearance, or he sees with his eyes, but Yahweh looks upon the heart. With Tamar, for example, we like to focus not on what she did, but why she did it. And if God elected these women to be the ancestors of Christ... We need to take into consideration what it says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 33 and 34. It says that who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, which also makes intercession for us. It's good advice when we study any character of the Bible or when we talk about other members of the Ecclesia. Would Christ have condemned his great-great-grandmothers, whom God had justified? These women are commended in Scripture for their faith. For how otherwise could they be mentioned in the line of Jesus? Rahab is mentioned in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. 
It says, by faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not, when she had received the spies with peace. And in James chapter 2, we got two examples of people that were justified by works. First of all, Abraham, and secondly, Rahab. She was justified by works when she hid her spies. So why is it then that God chose those women to be the forebears of Christ? I believe there are two reasons. First of all is that no flesh should glory in his presence so that God may be glorified. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, And verse 23, it says, We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how there not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world. And things that are despised has God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification, and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorious, let him glory in the Lord. We also, brothers and sisters, are despised by the world, at least when we live a life in the truth. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we are made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things unto this day. That word offscouring means the scum or the scrapings, that which is thrown away with distaste. This is what these women would appear to be through the eye of the flesh. But Yahweh sees not as men sees. Shall not the judge of the whole world do right? The second thing is that there's one thing which all these women had in common, all four of them. Apart from their faith and hope, none of them received that promised seed by their first husband. Because Tamar's first husband, called Ur, He was killed by God because he was evil. Rahab was a harlot, yet living with her family, which is quite unusual. However, Canaanite's women, when their husbands died, often went back to their families, like Tamar did, for example. It's not impossible to imagine that Rahab, her husband, may have died. And it was the only way to supplement her income from agriculture, because she was growing flax, wasn't she, to make linen from, and to support her family as well. It was possibly a Canaanite's custom, which was well accepted among those nations that didn't have God's will to guide their society. She may actually have run an inn where the two spies would naturally go to. And what she did may have been a custom, part of the services of the hostel. And then Ruth, her first husband, Mahlon, he died in Moab. And Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, he was killed by David. So why should this be the thing that all those women have in common? 
Possibly because in this way, God could select their husbands. We look at it the other way around. It's the seed of the woman we are talking about. The one who is in the line of the promised seed. And because the first husband of these women had died, they were free to marry another. A wonderful example. Because like when we are made free from sin, then we are free to become the bride of Christ. And we look forward to the marriage of the Lamb. And without having their first and unnatural husbands, the seed was really the seed of the woman and not of that the original husband. But all of us are descended from Eve. She was disobedient to God's commandment and we all suffer the consequences of her sin in that we all die. But by God's grace, a seed was promised to the woman who was to overcome the seed of the serpent and was ultimately fulfilled in another woman without a natural husband, Mary, whose seed was Christ. So then with this introduction, let us look then at those four women and today we're going to deal with Tamar. These women of whom the world was not worthy, but who through faith obtained the promises, have obtained a good report through faith. They became the mothers of the promised seed of our, last, our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, and they built up the house of God. So let's start then by looking at Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. She was introduced to Judah. And so people said, why, why is this chapter about Tamar and Judah, right in the middle of the story of Joseph. Because the story of Joseph starts with Genesis 38 and continues all the way to the end of the book. But the underlying theme is how God is working to bring Judah back to him. First one in chapter 8 says, It came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned in to a certain Adelamite whose name was Hiram. Why did he go there? It was a going down indeed for him, wasn't it? But knowing Judah's character, which was later revealed through much suffering, it's possible to suggest that he went down because he couldn't see the sorrow of his father. See, in the previous chapter, in verse 34, we read that after he heard that Joseph had been killed. He rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And later on, if you go to chapter 43, when he stands before Joseph... And he told them not to come back unless their younger brother is with them. And in verse 8 of chapter 43, Judah said unto Israel, his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that you may live and not die, both we and thou, and also our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shall I require it. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. And it's a turning point in Judah's character. Because later on in chapter 44, he says in verse 31, It shall come to pass when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die, and thy servant shall bring down the gray hairs of thy servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. And so he couldn't bear to see the evil that came upon his father. And therefore he went away. 
Now, after I've done something evil, brethren and sisters, there are two ways of dealing with the situation. The first and the best one would be to confess your sins, like David did, and they are forgiven. The other one is to run away, to escape, and to hope that the bad situation will go away. But that never happens. Certainly not when God is involved. Something as selling Joseph would never be forgotten. It's always on the conscience of the brethren. Look at chapter 42 and verse 21. Reuben is speaking here. He speaks here for his brethren. In chapter 42 and 21, they said one to another, We are very guilty concerning our brethren, our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. To see the anguish on the face of Joseph is something they could never forget. But Judah chose to run away and not cope with the situation, which he couldn't bear to see. That's the first thing he did wrong. And the second thing is, in verse 2, he saw there the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. And Shua means shouting. And he took her and went in unto her. It's the most unhelpful thing to do, brothers and sisters. Running away from your father's grief and to marry a Canaanite woman. It's condemned by God through Malachi. If you go to Malachi and keep your hands in Genesis 38, in Malachi chapter 2, we have God's judgment on the act of Judah marrying this Canaanite woman. In verse 10 and 11. God is speaking to them as his children. Verse 10 says, Have not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, every man against his brother, by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved, and he has married the daughter of a strange God. And that's the evil which he did, apart from that first one he did. He profaned the covenant of God which he had made with Abram, with Isaac, and of Jacob. How does it get profaned? The children, brothers and sisters, they were half Jewish and half Canaanite. What good can come of people of such mixed backgrounds? What kind of education would these children have of their parents? But as you show this picture of Heritage College after all, because there we are as parents and teachers working together, single-mindedly to bring up new children into the truth. But if the parents are divided, one pulls one way, another pulls the other way, what good can come from that? That's why God brought a flood on the first world. Because the sons of God, the believers, saw the daughters of men, the unbelievers, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all that they chose. So the problems of the mixed marriages is really starkly outlined in the family life of Judah. He was, by the way, first of all, he gave birth to a son in verse 3. Uh, she conceived and bare a son and called his name Ur. He was at half Canaanite, his half Jewish boy. She conceived again and bare a son and called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bare a son and called his name Shelah. Then we told he was at Kizib when he bare him. And Kezib means a lie. He was living 
a life of a lie, not a life of the truth. And these three sons, they were born to the Canaanitish woman. Well, you get one pulling one way, another pulling the other way, the stronger of the pair will win. In this case, the Canaanitish woman, she won. She succeeded because in verse 7 we read that Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh slew him. We read in verse 6 that he had taken a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And again, Tamar means a palm tree, a wonderful symbol for Heritage College because it's an upright tree. And we want our children to be upright like palm trees. We don't know who she was or where she comes from, whether she was Jewish or Canaanite, but her name is a Hebrew name. And perhaps there is some kind of an indication later on in the chapter from which tribes he came. So Ur was killed by God because he was evil. And then when he died, in verse 8, we read that Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother. This was a feeble attempt of Judah to impose the Leverite law on his family. That law was later incorporated in the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, a brother is required to take the wife of his deceased older brother and raise up seed in his brother's name. So that boy that would be born, the firstborn, would actually take on the name of his older brother and get the inheritance. But in such a mixed family, with the mother not agreeing, and the father feebly imposing some order of the family, can you expect the cooperation of the sons? Of course you can't. But it's the first hint, perhaps, that Judah felt that there was something wrong in his family. And usually young families, when their children get born, they get some pangs of conscience. Well, we must give some guidance to our children. He left his father's house. He must have remembered all the wonderful laws which Jacob had imposed on his family. But after Onan was also killed by God because he wouldn't raise up seed for his older brother, then in verse 11, we are told that Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house, till Shelah, my son, be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And so she went and dwelt in her father's house. But that means sending her into isolation. Well, what good can that do? Sending her away from a household where... The law of God should have been ruling. But Judah did not act according to what he knew to be right, is to give Shelah to Tamar. Why didn't he do it? We just read it. Lest he die also. Now Judah was getting afraid. Perhaps he knew that God was working in his life after all. And in the next verse, in verse 12, we read in process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died also. And so everything was taken away from him. It was very much like Naomi. She left Bethlehem, the house of bread. Eliezer did it, actually. Brought his family away from the country, the promised land. And what happened? The husband died and two sons died. The same happened to Judah. And it's marvelous to see how God was working with Judah, brothers and sisters. He made him suffer to bring him back to him. Just like God worked with us and also with the Jewish people. The word Jew is Judah. Judah means a Jew. Yehudim is the plural of the word. 
And it's a parable of how God is bringing the Jewish people back to him, and he's still doing it. The reason for suffering is that it brings out our real character. Jesus also had to learn obedience by the things which he suffered. What's going to happen next? Well, from verse 13 onwards, we get a part of Scripture which we like to ignore, and we condemn when Tamar played the harlot. But we need to look beyond the act. We can openly condemn it. We can also ask the question, what motivated her to act in the way she did? Tamar knew her father-in-law's character well enough. And where did she go to? In verse 14, we are told, she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil. At first thought, looking at the back of the hall there, there was Tamar there, it's kind of a pup staying with a veil over her face. She covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place. On the margin it says, the door of eyes. It's petach enayim, it means the opening of the eyes. And indeed, what happened there was an eye-opening in both the character of Tamar and the character of Judah, and also an eye-opener for us. How do we judge Tamar? We often brought into situations which are real eye-openers into our character. How do we react to them? Remember that after Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were opened. The same phrase as an eye-opening. But what they saw was not what they expected. They expected that when your eyes shall be opened, said the serpent, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. But what they really saw was the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves apron. And they heard the voice of Yahweh Elim walking in the garden by the wind of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh Elim among the trees of the garden. And by looking wrongly at scripture, brothers and sisters, we can also hide ourselves from God so that we cannot see the lessons which God is teaching us. So Tamar plays the harlot. It's not a normal word for a prostitute. The word is a kadoshah, a holy one. And among the Canaanites, they had temple services, and women were around the temple, and they offered their services as part of the festival that was happening. It was shearing time, and after the shearing, they brought offerings to the temple, and some women were around that place. So we need to do some lateral thinking. The ease which Judas showed, which he acted upon, showed his character, which was well known to Tamar. Otherwise, she would not have dared do what she did. She knew Judah well enough to know that he would make use of an harlot. Shows, of course, that he must have been a desperately unhappy man. But the reason for Tamar was very different. Why did she do it? Because in verse 14, we are told, at the end of verse 14, she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. Was he so mad keen on Sheila? No, I don't think so. Or perhaps she was, I don't know. But she wanted to be the mother of the promised seed. That's what was her task in the first place. That was the promise by being the wife of the firstborn son of Judah. And she was not going to let go of it. By the way, how did she know that Judah was going to be the bearer of the promised seed? We are told in chapter 49... 
you go to chapter 49, at the end of Jacob's life, and it is many years after this event, we read there in verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh, to whom it belongs, come, and unto him shall be the gathering of the people. Binded the foe unto the vine, and the asses cold unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in blood of grapes. Yet the scepter shall not depart from Judah. But how did Tamar know that? Long before Jacob gave the blessing to his sons. Thus you must have listened to the family stories which Judah undoubtedly had told him. If you go back to the beginning of this chapter, he must have told you about Reuben. In verse 3, Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, unstable as water. Thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then thou defilest it. He went up to my couch. And Tamar must have reasoned. A man like that can never get the promises. There were two other boys in line for the promised seed. In verse 5, you got Simeon and Levi. They are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret. Unto their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man. And in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce. And their wrath, for it was cruel. I'll divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So she must have listened to those family stories. Judah talking about his brethren. And she must have realized that those three would never get the blessing. The next one in line was Judah. She was an extremely perceptive woman. Knowing this long before Jacob actually said so. The reward for her service to Judah was going to be a kid from the flock. See in verse 17 of Genesis 38. When he asked to come in to her, she said at the end of verse 16, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? He said, I'll send thee a kid from the flock, as a kid of the goats. Why would he suggest a kid of the goats? which you know is a typical sin offering. Well, perhaps Judah knew that what he did wasn't right, and he paid the sin offering. Why did Tamar accept it? She also knew that what she did wasn't right, and she also needed a sin offering. But we all, brothers and sisters, need a sin offering, because we've all committed sins, Tamar must have remembered the Garden of Eden when God clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And Eve must have waited desperately for that seed of that woman to be born. When Cain was born, if you go to chapter 4 in Genesis, it says there in verse 1, Genesis 4 and verse 1, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. But that is not what the Hebrew says. And Hebrew says, I've gotten a man, that Yahweh. 
because she didn't get a man from the Lord, she got a man from Adam, because Adam knew his wife Eve, and therefore they got a, a baby boy. But she believed that that first boy was that Yahweh, the one who shall be, the one who should overcome the seed of the serpent. But when she saw him growing up, she must have been disappointed when he saw his character developing, because he didn't have the right attributes. He must have been like Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Yes, not the right attributes of character to overcome the seed of the serpent. And therefore she called her next son. In verse 2, she again bare her brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep. Now that speaks volumes, brothers and sisters, into the perception of Eve. She thought it's Cain, I've gotten a man, that Yahweh. But she must have realized that he wouldn't be able to be the one to overcome the seed of the serpent. And she called her second son Abel, vanity. She must have realized that none of her sons would qualify to become that one, that Yahweh, to overcome the seed of the serpent. And women all three ages must have been waiting for that seed to be born, was to overcome the seed of the serpent. Tabar knew that the seed would come through Judah, and she wanted to be saved by bearing that child. She must have believed it very strongly that God would be with her. What would have happened if she would not have conceived then she would have been just a harlot, and she would have been self-condemned. But God gave her conception. So instead of focusing on the natural deed, as men see it with his eyes, why can't we look at her through God's eyes? Because he looks at her heart. She risked her life to get that seed from Judah, the promised seed, knowing that if she would be found out, or rather when she will be found out, she's going to get to die. It was an act of faith. And as what Judah said in verse 24 of Genesis 38, when he learned that Tamar was with child by Horden, what did he say? Bring her forth and let her be burned. And that's so easy to say, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Very quick in condemning others. But what about himself? And why did he not first find out who was the man involved? There's always a second party involved, isn't there? See, the punishment was later adopted in the law of Moses. If you go to Leviticus chapter 21, and verse 9, it says, The daughter of any priest... If she profane herself by playing the whore, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Now, there's a punishment only reserved for a daughter of a priest. Normally, when a harlot was found out, she was stoned to death. Remember that woman taken in adultery? When those Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus, and it says, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what say is thou? Again, they were very quick to condemn, righteously so, because it's forbidden the law of Moses. But what does Jesus say? He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. So he mustn't be like Judah. Let her be burned without finding out all the facts. And if those scribes and Pharisees, if you go to John chapter 8, would have only looked at Jesus... And would have taken notice of what he was doing. 
they would have stopped dead in their tracks. In verse 7, uh, rather verse 5, we just read, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what say is thou? And this they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And the rest is in italics. It's not in the original text. As though he heard him not. Jesus is not like that. He doesn't pretend not to hear anybody. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What was he writing? It only would have looked over their shoulder and would have remembered Jeremiah chapter 17. Look at Jeremiah chapter 17. And verse 13. It says, Yahweh, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken Yahweh, the fountain of living waters. And I feel sure that Jesus was writing down the names of those Pharisees and those Sadducees and those scribes that said, she was taken in adultery. They didn't do it out of good motives. They wanted to do it to trap Jesus. Their names are written in the earth. But our names, brothers and sisters, are written in heaven as we do all our best to keep our name written in a book of life and not to have our name wiped out. But Tamar was going to be burned with fire, a punishment reserved for daughters of a priest. And although there were no Jewish priests around, was she perhaps related to the tribe of Levi, who later became the priest? Because the punishment is not a usual punishment for harlots. And also in that next chapter, in Leviticus chapter 22, if you go back to Leviticus 22, the following chapter after 21, it says in verse 13, But if the priest's daughter be a widow or divorced and have no child and is returned into her father's house as in her youth, she shall eat of her father's meat. But it shall no stranger eat thereof. When Moses wrote those laws, he didn't just invent those laws. They were already put into practice. Like Abram, he kept all God's laws and his statutes and his commandment. Moses wrote them down. So there are two indications, perhaps, that she may be the daughter of a tribe who later became priests. And if that would be the case, which we can't prove, Tamar would have set in motion a tradition of intermarriage between the tribes of Levi and Judah. Remember Aaron? If you go to Exodus chapter 6. Well, that can't be right. It's probably Exodus chapter 3. Yeah, Exodus chapter 4. Sorry, I made a mistake in here. In Exodus chapter 4, we read in verse 23 that Aaron took him Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, sister of Nachshon, to wife. We just read those two names in Matthew chapter 1. They belong to the tribe of Judah. 
as Sheber, Nadab, and Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. So here we got a strong link between the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Judah. And later on also you get Joshebiah, the daughter of King Jehoram, was married to the high priest, as he saved her cousin's life, who was Joash, the king of Judah. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, but her cousin was Elizabeth, was of the house of Aaron. So there are quite a few links and possibly more in the scripture where the line of Judah and the line of Levi intermarry. And perhaps, I only say perhaps, this is the first instance of it. So that Christ could claim to be both king and priest from both lines of his family. But Tamar wanted the seed of Judah so that the promises could continue and therefore she risked her life. What did Jesus say about people that risked their life? He says in John 15 and 13, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So what a great woman she was. However, she knew that she needed something to save her life because she was going to be burned with fire. And what is it? In verse 17 of Genesis 38, he said, I've sent thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Will thou give me a pledge till thou send it? Now, a pledge... In Hebrew, is the word for arabon, the most interesting word. It means actually to mix with another person. It's still used in modern Hebrew. When I first went to Israel in 1967, uh, where's Joel? Can you get this machine going, please? Uh, I wanted to rent a car from an Arab, and uh, he told me how much it would cost, and I agreed. Said, "Well, tenli arabon." He wanted to have an arabon. I said, "What is an arabon? A, a deposit." He said, I want some money to make sure that you'll bring that car back, an Arabon. And that word actually is carried over into the New Testament, into the Greek. What was it? What was the pledge that she asked for? In verse 18 we read, what pledge shall I give thee? Which Arabon will I give you? And she said, thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff that is in thine hands. And he gave it her and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. So there are not three individual items, the signet and the bracelet and the staff. They are all connected. Remember when I gave those archaeological talk in that, in that wine museum place? I showed you these bulle from the city of David. Those were those clay seals. Thank you. How do we go to the next one? Um, these were clay seals when they used to write a letter they used to tie it with a string you remember put a blob of clay on and these are stamp seals because as I showed you then they found a seal this is a proper seal a stamp seal which is on a ring it's a precious or semi-precious stone and in reverse it has the name of Hanan the son of Hilkai the high priest written on so if you would write a letter and then he put a string around the letter and put a blob of clay on and impressed his seal into the clay so you can actually read who is the sender. That is the character, which means an imprint of the sender, of the writer. And so we found some other seals, like this one of Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah. And again, not a seal was found, but the, the bullet, the, 
impression in the clay from that stamp seal, and you can read perfectly, if you know ancient Hebrew, who the sender is. It's like his signature. Now, these seals only came into being later on in the history. In the time of Judah and Jacob, they had different kinds of seals. They were called cylinder seals, as you can see here. A cylinder seal is a little cylinder, about three, four centimeters high, and it got a hole drilled through the center. So that as you can see from the drawing on the right, you can put a string around it and either hang it around your neck or attach it to your staff as Judah had done. Now, in the seal, certain things are graven in. And if you take a piece of clay and you take your seal, you put a stick through it, you can roll it into the clay, you get the same effect as the stamp seal, which is, comes from a, from a ring, from a, a seal. And so here the, you see the impression of the seal on the clay. A metal bar goes through the hole, and you roll it through the clay, and it transfers the impressions onto the clay tablet. And they're carved from stone, sometimes precious stone, and... They carve all sorts of animals or birds, plants, things, abstract patterns in, and often writing. And it says in the bottom, they were used to identify the person carrying it. In fact, it represented a signature of that person when he rolled it over a clay tablet. And they would sometimes uh, have something specific to their uh, person or to the, their function. Uh, Gudea, he was a man, an architect who lived in about 1800 BC, the same time of, of we are reading about, and he presents here a, a bottle with water flowing out of it, the two streams, the Euphrates and the Tigris, and a tree, the tree of life growing out into the God so that he can continue with his work. And on the left-hand side, you can see there is writing, and often they would write their name, actually, on that cylinder seal. And so when he would write a letter on a clay tablet, then he rolls it on it, and it was his signature. You know, he was an architect, and he has presented himself to the gods, and he must be a qualified person. And on the bottom, you get some Egyptian cylinder seals also. They were widely used in that period. A doctor also had a seal. He wrote a prescription, and to make sure that it was his prescription, he rolled his cylinder over that clay tablet. And you can see him standing there on the left. Uh, some of the instruments they used, and again, writing on the right-hand side. So that was the seal that was attached by a string to the neck of a person. You have it always with you or onto the staff. And on the bottom one, you see another Sumerian seal, and we mustn't forget that's where Abram came from. So we would have continued those traditions. Yeah, there's a temple there on the, on the left here. A temple building with two openings and writing in between. And you have four birds flying and uh, here gazelles uh, jumping around. Uh, whatever they represent, we don't know exactly. But that's the kind of seal which um, Judah would have had attached to his staff. Now what's the significance of it? If you go to Exodus chapter 28, and we see where the word seal, chotam, is used. In, we read about the garments of the high priest, and in verse 36, that thou shalt make a plate of pure gold and grave upon it like the engravings of a seal, of a signet. It's the same word as the seal of Genesis 38. Holy to Yahweh. 
So it was engraved, like you saw the engravings on that cylinder seal. And if you roll it out, if you impressed it, then it was holy to Yahweh. And that's how the thoughts, because they're located in our forehead, should be holy to Yahweh. And the high priest's thoughts should certainly be holy to Yahweh. And in verse 37, we read, And thou shalt put it on a blue lace that it may be upon the mitre, upon the forefront of the mitre, it shall be. And that's what Tamar also wanted. She wanted to have not only this seal, but also thy bracelet. The same word for the bracelet here, that lace, upon which that golden plate was fixed to the headdress of the high priest. And so the spiritual meaning is not lost when we read in Revelation chapter 9 that was commanded that certain people should not be hurt. They should not hurt the grass of the earth, not any green thing or any tree, but only those men who have the seal of God in their foreheads. And that's how we should be sealed, brethren and sisters. That when somebody reads our thought, they can recognize the seal of God in our foreheads. The bracelets, those blue laces, were very important. If you go to Numbers chapter 15... We can read about the significance of those laces. In verse 37 we read, And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue, a lace or a bracelet of blue, same word, patil in Hebrew. And it shall be unto you for a fringe. Why? That you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of Yahweh and do them. That's what the bracelets represent. And that you seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you used to go a whoring, but that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your Elohim. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, which brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your Elohim. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. You see, in the seal, it was attached by those ribbons of blue to the staff. And was a staff. In Psalm 23, we know it so well. I will fear no evil when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. A shepherd uses staff to guide the sheep. It's like an extension of your body. In Exodus chapter 4, we know the story so well. That Moses, when he was given a sign by by God, to take his rod or his staff, same word, throw it on the ground, and became a serpent. He took it up again, and with that staff, with that rod, he could do all those wonderful signs. It represents the extension of the owner, which is God. And that staff was Jesus, who first had our serpent nature, but the second time, like that leper's hand, it was healed. And all those wonderful signs, they were done by the staff. So that's why... She asked those very personal belongings of Judah, his seal and his bracelet, to tie the seal unto the staff. And that saved her life. Because when you go back to Genesis 38, when after he had said, bring her forth and let her be burnt, in verse 25, read, when she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the men whose these are, am I this child? And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet and the bracelets and the staff? 
and confronted with them, Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I gave her not to Sheila, my son, and I knew her again no more. So these three things, the seal and the bracelets and the staff, saved her life. We also are guilty of death. We also go to be burned by fire unless we can produce this seal. Maybe we have the seal of God's name in our foreheads through the keeping of the commandments tied to the staff which represent Jesus who guides our life. Then our life will be saved at the judgment seat because Judah pronounced judgment on Tamar. Also judgment is going to be pronounced on us. And we read out the wonderful thing that happened. In verse 27, it came to pass in the time of her travel that, behold, twins were in her womb. It came to pass when she traveled that one put out his hand, and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. It came to pass as she drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out, and she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Phares. And afterward came out his brother, that had a scarred thread upon his hand, and his name was called Sarah. So it's a wonderful thing. The scarlet thread, the color of red, the color of blood, the blood of the covenant was first given to Zerah. God first gave his promises and his covenant to Israel, but they withdrew. And then Paris broke through, just like the Gentiles. Because he said, you count yourself unworthy of everlasting life, said Paul. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. We will come back to that scarlet thread in our next study, God willing. We will see how that scarlet thread can save lives. Now Judah's children by Tamar, Zerah, and Perez must have been in the procession of the Israelites going down to Egypt. And Judah had no more sons after that. He must have been a broken man in view of that strained relationship with Tamar because he didn't marry her. And afterwards, after he stood before Joseph, and everything has been put right with Joseph, he must have told his father all the things that had done to him, then he knew that God was with him again. And there may be an indication in 1 Chronicles chapter 2 that he put things right for Tamar also. Do you remember Onan should have raised up seed unto his brethren? so that that firstborn boy would have the inheritance of his father. Now, in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, we get the whole families of Judah. Let's start in verse 3. The sons of Judah are Ur and Onan and Shelah. Then we get the sons of Phares and Hezron and so on. But I want you to go to... Now let us start at verse 3. The sons of Judah were Ur and Onan and Shelah, which three were born unto him of the daughter of Shua, the Canaanites. And Ur, the firstborn of Judah, was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and he slew him. And then Tamar, his daughter-in-law, bare him Phares and Zerah. All the sons of Judah were five. But now if you go to the next page in chapter 4, where we get more information about the sons of Judah... First of all, dealing with Phares and Hezron and Carmi and so on. But I want to go to see what happened to Shelah. There's a third son of Judah. And we read about him in verse 21. It's just a little, one of those undesigned scriptural incidences. The sons of Shelah, 
the son of Judah, so Sheila must have married. We are not told here who his wife was, but we are told what was the name of his firstborn son, and he called his firstborn son Ur. Why would he call his firstborn son Ur? That was the name of his older brother, for whom I believe he raised up seed so that that Ur may get the natural inheritance of Ur, who was the firstborn of Judah. So it may be that Judah later changed his mind and his attitude towards Tamar after being reconciled to Joseph and put his family right. So she may have been married to Sheila, and that would be a wonderful thing when the whole circle is, in a sense, complete. What can we learn ourselves personally from this moving and significant period in Scripture? At the judgment seat, we also need something like a pledge to save our lives. So what is our seal and our pledge? Or how do we get the pledge? You remember this Arabon in Hebrew? And it's been carried on, carried over into the Greek, untranslated, also Arabon. And that word is well known in Middle Eastern country. It's used as a down payment or a deposit. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. It's always difficult with Ephesians chapter 1 if you want to start somewhere in the middle because you want to have a verse for connection. You've got to go all the way back to verse 1. But we don't have time to do that now. It says in verse 12 that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So we're talking about trusting in Christ in whom ye also hoped or trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So we also are sealed with that seal which Tamar wanted to have from Judah, which is the earnest, and that's the word Arabon, that's the word for pledge. So the seal, which is the Holy Spirit of promise, is the pledge, for what? Of our inheritance. Then we'll get our inheritance at the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. So we also need a pledge. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, that word is used again. It says in verse 29, showing how we must lead our lives. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but that which is good for the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So that all save us in that day of redemption. If you go to Second Corinthians chapter 5, again we see this word used in a, in a wonderful context. It speaks there in chapter 4 about God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, 
And in the next chapter, 5, he speaks about that. And he says in verse 4, For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, because that light cannot shine out until this pot is broken, like in Gideon's time. So we are burdened, not for that he will be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up by life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who has also given unto us the pledge of the Spirit. And therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith. We are confident and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Because Tamar was absolutely sure that that pledge would save her life. And as sure as she was, and she knew that she needed it, so we also have been given this pledge of the Spirit. We go a few pages back in chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Talking about the promises, in verse 20, there's one second, sorry, second Corinthians chapter 1. Just the previous page. It speaks about the firmness of God's promises that he will certainly do as he has promised. In verse 20, For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him are amen, unto the glory of God by us. How otherwise would Tamar have dared to do what she did? She was absolutely sure about the promises of God. Now he which establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, is God, who has also sealed us and given us the pledge of the Spirit in our hearts. Remember, God doesn't look as men does. He doesn't look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. And that's where we need to have that promise. Remember, in Revelation chapter 7, let's go to Revelation chapter 7. It's wonderful because the scriptures span right from Genesis to Revelation, giving the same message all the way through. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four corners of the wind, the four winds, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. There were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of spiritual Israel. And so we get all those numbers. What a wonderful thing, brethren and sisters. But now let's go to Romans chapter 8 and see the importance of that pledge, which is the Spirit of God. It doesn't mean to say that we get little flames on our heads as the Spirit was first poured out. It's, we only have the Spirit of God in as much as we read the Word of God and put it to, remember, to memory and act upon it. We read in verse 9 of Romans chapter 8. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. That's the pledge. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
with the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that pledged that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh, as Judah did initially, but later he changed. For if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And Tamar lived, because she had a pledge. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And so, brethren, says, if you have this wonderful story of Tamar and Judah, in the place of opening of the eyes, how do we judge them? As the Pharisees did? Or do we look upon the heart of this great woman of faith? We've been given a chance, as we just read, to become the children, the sons of God, if we have that pledge in our foreheads. A final quote is that beautiful quote in 1 John chapter 3. So remembering that that spirit word is the pledge which God will recognize and save our lives at the judgment seat of Christ. And then he will give us our inheritance. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now, if you have that pledge, are the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. There's now some opportunity 